you would open your Bibles, please, to Genesis 18. We're going to work through, basically, the first half of that chapter today. Genesis 18, and our reading is going to start in verse 1, and will end after verse 15. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, If I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind them. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, as we have opened your word this morning and read from this account of Abraham and his conversation with you and Sarah and her conversation with you, may we recognize the question that you asked and how probing and penetrating those, uh, that question really is for us in our time. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Father, as we have your word open, we pray that you would Minister in our hearts by your Spirit. Help us as we seek to understand 
the meaning of this passage and its meaning for us. So do your work today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, uh, I wanted to refer to something I have a lot of experience with, and that is children. And I was thinking about uh, this passage, and, and uh, it occurred to me that uh, one of the great things about being a dad, and there are many, many great things about being a dad, one of the great things about being a dad is that their small children think that dad is the strongest man on earth. That's a lot of fun, right? Dads are saying, well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's pretty great, right? And so uh, can you imagine, you know, that from the perspective of this small child, that everything is too big for them. They have, you know, they struggle to open the, the car door, you know, that everything is too big and too heavy and, and too hard. And here dad comes along and does all this stuff. It's just wonderful. And dad is so strong. And imagine the sense of comfort and security it gives that child to stand next to dad and just know they don't have to be afraid of anything, right? Now, it gets a little awkward when small children of different parents begin to talk to one another. I was, I was asked uh, not long ago by uh, one of my small children, um, Dad, um, are you stronger than Mr. Andy? <laughs> That's me falling right off the pedestal there. Right? <laughs> I'm thinking, I may be the strongest man in the world, but I don't know how strong as that guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it's, imagine the comfort. Imagine the comfort for that child, understanding that dad uh, can deal with anything, that if mom and dad are there, if the parents are there, they don't have to be afraid of anything, right? Because the parents have this under control. Well, our passage today deals with whether our heavenly father can really do all things. I mean, really, can he really do all things? Is anything too hard for God? Now, the outline that you have in your hand really only covers the second paragraph here, verses 9 through 15, because verses 1 through 8 really set up the account. And there's a lot here, and there's a lot we could look at, but, um, but as, as, we, as we glance through this and just see what is written there, we see two main things that stand out to us. One is that we have a theophany. A theophany is basically God making himself visible or manifesting himself in some visible way to people. We see this clearly most often in the Old Testament. We see it quite a bit in Genesis particularly, where God uh, presents himself in some visible way. That's called a theophany. And so we see theophany here and some things that we can learn about this. But then secondly, we see uh, Abram, or Abraham's hospitality. And really, it's pretty noteworthy when we look at his hospitality there. But just a couple of things to think about in regard to uh, theophany, first of all, is that you have a little bit of uh, going back and forth between the fact that there are three men who appear, men in quotes, or uh, the appearance of men who appear to Abraham. And then at times, Abraham is talking to one of them. And at times, it will say, the Lord said, right? So you've got a little bit of going back and forth between the appearance of three uh, men standing there and conversation with one of those, or perhaps one primarily. And I don't think this is a picture of the Trinity. Uh, as, we, as we continue going on, we're going to see, for example, if you look at the first verse of, of chapter 19, the two angels came to Sodom 
in the evening, right? So I think what we have here is, is, is a theophany of God himself along with two accompanying angels. And of course, uh, God would be the leader of that group. And, uh, and then the angels, we're going to see the two of them go on and do stuff later on. So I think that's what we have there. Uh, but uh, it kind of goes back and forth, um, this presentation here of God himself. And so God makes his presence known visibly to Abraham himself. And then, um, and so I, I want to read just the first few verses here uh, regarding the theophany. There might be some other things we can pick up, but that's the primary uh, thing I want us to see here. The Lord appeared to Abram, or to, to him, by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So it's siesta time, it's too hot to do other stuff, so he's sitting there. Uh, cooling off, and he lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And he said, O Lord, or perhaps my Lord, it's not super clear whether Abraham recognizes, it seems like he doesn't actually recognize this as God in the beginning. He's going to get more and more of an inkling as he goes on, but but uh, the greeting, my Lord, or O Lord, could could be given just to an honored guest or a superior of some kind. And Abraham, who's, uh, who's um, going to be the host for these, would treat his guests in such a way. Seems like he's speaking to one of them. Oh, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they say, do as you have said. So he greets them in a very humble way, and he's very excited to greet them, and he's, he's very hospitable here. And, uh, and you can see how it kind of goes back and forth between one and three, one and three uh, in this conversation. But what I want us to notice uh, as well as is his hospitality, how eager he was to have guests, that he saw them and he ran to them. But he ran over there quickly and, uh, and bowed himself all the way down to the ground. Uh, so he, he goes to them. He bows himself to the ground. He's very desirous that they would stay by. And then look, uh, starting in verse 6. And Abraham went quickly after he's gotten permission. He goes quickly, right, into the tent to Sarah. And he tells her, quick, right? Take three seas of fine flour and knead it and make cakes. Quick. So he runs there. He goes quickly. And he tells her to be quick about it. And then Abraham ran to the herd. And you don't see these kinds of verbs, by the way, very often in, uh, in, in the Old Testament, particularly in Genesis, as we're talking about a man who is this old. Remember how old he is? He's about 100 years old. And he's running here, and he's telling, telling his aged wife to be quick about it and, and make sure you do this quickly. And he, he runs to the herd, and he, he takes a calf, tender and good, gives it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Again, and he took the curds and the milk and the calf, that he had prepared, and he set it before them. Now, do you remember what he said he was going to give them? A morsel of bread. <laughs> a morsel of bread. This is like a hobbit meal. Like This is the whole thing, right? And so he's, he's bringing out uh, generous portions here and serves it to them. And so we see a couple of things. First of all, the, uh, the, the energy that he gives to it. It's very quick in his hospitality. He's desirous to host uh, this uh, trio of men. He's very generous. He goes and takes the best, and he gives this. And, and uh, when you talk about what three seas of flour is, it's a massive amount that three men, or even with Abraham there, could never eat. It's a feast. Right? And he brings this to them, 
He calls it a morsel of bread. And then while he serves them, what does he do there in verse 8? He stood by them under the tree while they ate. He's very attentive. He wants to, you know, fill their cup when they're running out. He wants to make sure they've got everything they need. He wants to, he's very attentive, right? So we see his hospitality. Now, um, there's lesson in here regarding hospitality and how we ought to treat guests, right? But I think in the passage right here, what's really being done is we're seeing uh, Abraham and what kind of man he is, and particularly that's going to be contrasted in the next chapter when we meet his nephew Lot again. And we'll see what Lot's hospitality is like, and you can kind of contrast the two. But again, the first paragraph here is really basically setting up the story for what's going to happen in verses 9 and following. And that's what we get to here. With that as the backdrop, uh, we get to our paragraph here, and we see in the first couple of verses a repeating promise. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? There's been no mention of Sarah to this point. How would these guests know, right, and know her name, and where is she? Not just, surely a man of your age must have a wife, and so where is she? No, where is Sarah, your wife, right? So inquires um, right after Sarah, he apparently knows her name, and he said, she's in the tent, right? So Abraham, to this point, seems to be none the wiser, but, but he says that she is in the tent. And then the Lord said, verse 10, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So at this point, if Abraham hasn't figured it out yet, he's figuring it out because he's heard those words before. He's heard that promise before. If you look back in the previous chapter and look at, uh, look at verses 19 and 21 of chapter 17, you see basically the same words no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear, us, bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Verse 21, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So remember, we've had kind of a squabble going on about uh, the birth of a son, and there's been an argument about, well, whose son is it going to be? Maybe it's Eliezer of Damascus. I've kind of adopted him and brought him into my family. Maybe he'll count. No, he doesn't count. It's going to be someone through you, Abraham. Okay, well, since my wife and I can't have children, maybe, maybe it's with, with Hagar, uh, Sarah's handmaid. Well, uh, so you see uh, what happens there in chapter 16 with that. And the Lord comes along and says, no, it's going to be a child born to you, Abraham, and to you, Sarah. And by the way, it's going to be a male child and born to you about this time next year. Right? In the previous chapter, we saw that his name was going to be Isaac. But here you have a promise that's been given before, but now it's being given again with a slightly different detail, not really new information per se, but did you notice what, was, uh, what I haven't read yet at the end of verse 10? Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. So she's there. She's, she's listening in, not that she's prying, not that she's spying or or uh, anything like that, but this being a gathering of men and strange men, it would be odd for her to be there, and so she's in the tent, but she's right there. She's sort of part, as part of what is going on, and, and I want to propose to you that the reason this is repeated is because in chapter 17, the conversation was between Abraham and God. The promise was made to Abraham, and now you've got Sarah present, though she's divided by a tent flap, but the promise is really being made to her in this instance. 
It's being repeated, but not because the author forgot that he just said it in the previous chapter, but whereas it had been given to Abraham before, now it's being given to Sarah. Really, the conversation is between the Lord and Sarah. You're going to see that as, uh, as the conversation goes on, that becomes more and more evident to us. So we have a repeating promise. Now, why would they need a repeating promise? I mean, this has kind of been hinted at. It's been, it's been talked about in, in more or less specificity uh, for several chapters now. Why would they need to hear it again? Why, why would Sarah need to hear it? Well, the, the gravity of the promise, the, the amazing nature of the promise itself is such that it would need to be repeated. It's audacious. It's outlandish. How can it even be? And so he wants them to believe it, and so... He comes here and he technically appears to Abraham, but he's really talking to Sarah. So we have a repeating promise. Well, then we continue on in verse 11 and 12 when we see unbelieving laughter. Verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. Now, that's something we know about them by now. <laughs> that's been repeated a number of times. That's been a major, you know, their age, particularly Abraham's age, well, but Sarah's age too, those have been major characters in the plot so far, how old they are. And the, uh, the author here points that out to us again. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. And by the way, when, when she was young and the way of women was with her, she wasn't fertile anyway. All right, so now she's past menopause, the chances which were slim and none, are, are growing slimmer. They're that old. And so their age is an, a major character in what's going on here. So in light of all of that, Sarah thinking this about herself, thinking this about her husband, thinking about what the Lord had just said, verse 12, so Sarah laughed to herself. And this wasn't a laughter of joy, like finally, woohoo, this is so great. Fine. No, this... Look what, look what she says. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? There's a little bit of disbelief there. There's maybe a lot of disbelief there. That her, her laughter here is, is not because she's rejoicing. She's, she's, she sees the obstacles of their age and of their infertility. Those are obstacles to the Lord's plan. They're just too old. They weren't able to have children when they were young. And now they're not young. How can this even be? And so she, she laughs at it. Surely they have, they have no possibility. She will not have the pleasure of conceiving a child. That's the way she sees it. And so she laughs at the Lord's statement. She's, she's skeptical. She's perhaps a little bitter. She's been promised this before. She's heard this before. She's been down this road. She's lived in anticipation and expectation for the fulfillment of this promise for low these 25 years. So I think she's experiencing a little bit of hopelessness. And before we get you know, too hard on her, we, we ought to understand what she's been through. This is a, you know, a quarter of her life and more. She's been experiencing uh, this promise held out there that has not happened. And even before that, for however long they were married before that, she would have been a woman who wanted to have children and was unable. 
So she's experienced loss. She's experienced uh, hope that was never met. And so I think there's a bit of, of hopelessness here in her laughter. And this reminds me of some uh, friends of ours when we were at language school in Russia. They had moved to Russia for the purpose of uh, working in the orphanages because orphanages are still a big deal uh, in Russia, particularly they were at that time. And ironically, um, unfortunately, while they were in language school in preparation for a lifetime of ministry in Russia, right, right alongside us, uh, the rules changed because of some goings-on and no longer were Americans allowed into orphanages, period, in Russia. So they had to retool and reshift. Um, so that was very unfortunate. But they had, they had done some short-term trips before and had experiences with orphanages. And they, they described a very, very sad uh, situation, one that kind of breaks your heart. And that is an orphanage, a room full of small children, small toddlers and even, even infants, and the room is quiet. Now, if you're a parent of small toddlers or of infants, you're thinking, whoo, the greatest thing when the room is silent, isn't that so great? But when you have a room full of children this age, the reason they were silent is because they knew that crying would do them no good. Expressing their needs in the only way they, they could, with crying, with, with fussing, with, with making noise, wasn't going to be received anyway. And so it broke our friends' hearts to go into a silent nursery, as it were, not because the children were happily asleep, but because they were hopeless. And so, of course, that had motivated them to uh, move there and, and minister in that capacity. And they moved there about the same time we did, and, and uh, they were unable to do so. But that hopelessness has stuck with me, that feeling, that sense. I love it when I walk into the baby's room and the baby's asleep. That's the greatest thing. It's like quiet. You can hear a little bit of breathing. And, you, you know, that's wonderful. And that, this situation is not that. This is a room full of kids. There ought to be somebody fussing, but nobody will complain because nobody is listening. And that's a little bit, I think, how Sarah might feel in this context. She laughs, shaking her head. Now, when I'm old, really, all these years, I think there's a great degree of uh, at least skepticism, at least skepticism, but kind of mixed in uh, there with hopelessness and, and bitterness. But notice that she, she laughs to herself. She laughed to herself. She doesn't speak it out. She doesn't, you know, it's not like she's guffawing in the back room or something like that. She, she does it to herself. She kind of keeps it inward. It's, it's inside. It's, it's in her heart. And she says what she says there in verse 12. She laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? This is, this is spoken in, uh, with a degree of bitterness and, and disbelief in her in her heart, but she doesn't voice these concerns, but they're there. They don't come out of her mouth, but they're there, and the Lord knows them. And so we have the Lord's response there with searching questions. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, remember, it's Abraham and the Lord talking to each other, but really the conversation is with Sarah, who's over here to the side, right? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? 
Even if she really does think that the Lord will give her a child, she's thinking, I'm so old now, I can't hardly even enjoy having a child. The Lord asks the why question, why did Sarah laugh? Now this, this question, in a sense, is rhetorical. The Lord doesn't ask it because He doesn't know. Hey, I thought I heard laughter. What was that all about? Hey, there was a, some, some going, noise going on behind the tent. What was that about? He, the Lord knows. He's asking so that Abraham, He's asking so that Sarah will face up to why it is she laughed. When He asks those questions, when He asks us questions, in Scripture like this, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. It's because he wants us to understand the answer. And so he asks, why did she laugh? Is that an appropriate response to the Lord? To laugh with this kind of, uh, this kind of disbelief or this kind of latent bitterness or, or whatever it is going on there? He knows why. He perfectly knows her heart. He knows her laughter. He knows her thoughts. But he's asking for her sake, asking for Abraham's sake to, to look at that moment. Wait, wait, let's focus on that for a sec. Why, why did she laugh? Why did she say, now that I'm old, am I going to have a baby? A large part of her thinks that her age and her stage in life are simply too much for God to overcome. That's why he asks the question, why did Sarah laugh? But then he goes on with a, another rhetorical question, and this is a truly rhetorical question, not just one that he knows the answer to, but one that we know the answer to as well. Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? But then you have this rhetorical question in verse 14 that is the, the real punchline, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now you and I know, and every Sunday school child knows the true answer to that, the true answer is no, there is nothing that is too hard for the Lord. But when we have to say that out loud, when we have to answer that question, it takes us to the point where we realize, I have just given an answer that I know is true, but in my heart, practically, I don't believe it's true. Otherwise, I wouldn't have laughed at the Lord. So, God asks this question to make a strong point. If we, if we switch the question around so that it's no longer a rhetorical question, it's a statement, it's an exclamation, nothing is too hard for the Lord. That's the point she ought to get, and that's the point we ought to get, that old, old age is not too hard for Yahweh to overcome. That bad health or physical inability are not insurmountable for God. That singleness is not too big an obstacle for God Almighty to remove. Poverty is not crippling to God. Past failure is not devastating to Yahweh. Nothing, nothing is too hard God. So Sarah will bear a son, regardless of her age, regardless of her infertility, 
regardless of how old her husband is, regardless of how many years they've been trying and been unsuccessful, regardless of how many times it seemed to her that the promise will never happen, regardless of perhaps all the other uh, teasing that she got. We know she got that from Hagar. The mockery for, for being a, a woman who wants to have children, who can't have children. But at the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. In the Lord's timing, and by the way, now we have a stopwatch that's been started. We have a calendar been given that we don't know the day, perhaps, but it's going to be within a year. It's going to be about a year's time. The Lord will keep His promise. You can count on it, and He will do so at the appointed time. But it's interesting. Look at the last verse there, verse, verse 16. So remember in verse 14, the Lord had said, or excuse me, in verse 13, the Lord had said, why did Sarah laugh and say this? In verse 15, Sarah denies it. I didn't laugh. Now, I don't know if she's, you know, playing the attorney here and she's saying, well, I didn't actually verbally laugh. I didn't make noise outwardly. I was only in my heart. But she denies it nonetheless. I did not laugh. Why did she say that? Why did she deny this before the Lord? Because she truly believed it? No, it's because she was afraid. For she was afraid. Of course, the Lord knows the truth, and he says, no, but you did laugh. This is amazing to me that, that she would be more afraid of being caught laughing at God than she would be afraid of caught lying to God. That's amazing to me. She's afraid to admit what is really going on in her heart. But the Lord knows. There are some implications here for us. We've moved quickly through this passage, but there are some implications for us. First of all, the strength of our faith is not what saves us. We don't see Sarah here being the bastion of strong faith. We haven't even seen Abraham, who's the, the man of faith, the father of faith. We haven't even seen him being uh, uh, just oozing faith and confidence in God throughout his story, have we? Particularly with her, we see her being weak in faith. And we might be tempted to think, ooh, she's on, she's on the verge of, of having real problems here because of, because of her weak faith, and maybe this isn't going to happen and whatnot. But the strength of our faith is not what saves us. It's the object of our faith that saves us. We get this turned around in our, uh, in our culture, in our day and age. There's a strong emphasis on faith and people of faith and as long as you have faith. And, and you have to finish that sentence. Faith in what? Faith in whom? You can be oozing and abounding with faith, but if the object of your faith is not worthy of that faith, does not have the power or the strength, then your faith is, it might give you a psychological boost of some sort. It might carry you through a difficult time, but in the same way, kind of a delusion will. It's the object of our faith that is strong. Now, we want to have strong faith in Christ. We, I, I, I want you to be strengthened and encouraged in Christ, and, and, and I want to be strong in my faith, but that is not always the case, is it? Sometimes faith is 
is, is pretty weak. But weak faith in a powerful Savior saves because of the object of our faith. So that's the first implication. Second implication here, we have to learn from Scripture what God is like and what He can do. You see how Sarah was kind of uh, amassing in her mind here all the, uh, the, all the objections to God being able to fulfill His promise. And even the way you read verse 11 there, right? This is, this, this is written by the author. It's, it's, uh, it's not her words exactly, but you can tell these are the things he's thinking. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, and they were advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. And so she laughs and says... She's like collecting together in her mind all the reasons why that can't be. And all of those reasons piled together are overcome by the revelation of God. What God says He will do, He will do, regardless of all the objections and obstacles that have been piled up. We have to learn from Scripture what God is like and what He can do. God's character and His capability are both greater than our reasoning alone would ever tell us think, wow, we've been married this, all this time, and, and, and surely God can't do that. And God comes along in His Word and says, I'm going to do that. You can bet He's going to do that. So we need to be informed from Scripture about what God is like. Thirdly, God keeps His promises. God keeps His promises. Far too many verses for me to to amass, but when you go all the way through Scripture, that is a recurring theme, that though man is often faithless, yet God is faithful. For example, Nehemiah 9.32 sums this up very well, where it says, Our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, keeps covenant and steadfast love. He keeps His promises. The fourth implication, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Job 42 says to the Lord, Job says to the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah cries out, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And the Lord answers him just 10 verses later, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Rhetorical question. Or the angel Gabriel, when he shows up to Mary in in, uh, Luke chapter 1, nothing will be impossible with God. For Jesus' own words, Matthew 19 and Mark chapter 10, with God, all things are possible. If we get nothing else from, from this chapter from this paragraph, we need to get that nothing is impossible with God. So some points for us to apply in our own lives. First of all, believe God's promises. Believe God's promises. That God is almighty and nothing is too hard for him ought to encourage us like that small child who looks at dad and thinks he's the strongest man in the world. Dad, can you lift the house? Dad, can you throw a car? Of course, the the dad can't throw the car and can't lift the house. But that comfort is to be our comfort in light of who God 
is. That ought to encourage us. It ought to give us profound hope that God can and will accomplish all that he says he will do. But there's a corollary to this, another application. It's really kind of the flip side. Believe God's promises, but don't count on what God has not promised. Don't count on what God has not promised. Though God is able to do all His holy will, He has not committed Himself to do all your will. I bring this up because we see Sarah here wrestling to believe an actual promise from God. The struggle is for her to believe what God had said and that He would do it. This isn't simply the struggle to believe that God can do great things or that God can do all things for me that I might think of. Certainly, God has the ability to give absolutely anything He desires without limit. God has the ability to do that. But God hasn't uh, uh, promised everything that we might think or that culture might teach us or that, that you might hear in, in, in broader Christendom might think that God has promised us those things. There are entire patches of the church that would tell you that God wants you to be financially wealthy and that God has in some way promised you riches of the financial variety, like a million dollars. God has not promised you that. You may, you may want a million dollars, the person telling you uh, that, that God had promised you a million dollars may have wanted you to have a million dollars, and that person may have even believed God was promising it to you. But unless we find it in here, He has not promised us that. We live in a culture and in a day and age where, where we can easily... It's as if we view the two in the same category, the promises that we have in Scripture... We view in the same category as promises that I feel like God has promised me this thing. Folks, we need to be super careful and identify the difference between those two. The promises of God found in His Word, correctly understood, we can take to the bank. Period. The promise that you may feel like you've received from God, apart from God's Word, He has not made to you. And the problem is, when we begin to treat those two as identical, this promise, the promise in God's Word, He will keep, this promise that you think you have received from God in some way, that didn't come from His Word, He may not keep. And what happens? If you think you received a promise from God and He didn't keep it, you can be tempted to believe, well, God really doesn't always keep His promises. Maybe He... Maybe he, I was deceived in some way. Maybe he deceived me in some way about that. And what other promises will he not keep like these in Scripture? You see how in, in, in a desire to, to trust God for more and more things than we ought to, God can give you a million dollars. I have no idea if he's going to, but he hasn't promised to do so. When we desire to treat those two as the same and, 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 and trust this promise over here that I feel in the same category as I trust this promise that I have from God's Word, when this one falls short, it pollutes all of my faith in God, all of my trust in God's promises. So we need to distinguish between the two 
Count on God's promises. Believe God's promises as found in His Word. And don't count on promises beyond that. We know His character. We know what He's like. We know He loves us. We know He's generous. And we know He often wants His children to suffer, and even often in poverty, and even offer, uh, often ending in perhaps their martyrdom. We trust God. We don't trust promises that come from elsewhere than in His Word. A couple of concluding applications here for us. Is there some promise of God that you've scoffed at as simply too hard for God? You read the promise in your word and you kind of, <laughs> you kind of chuckle. And then really, now after years of uh, seeing this not come to pass, is this really going to come to pass now? Maybe, maybe perhaps you struggle to believe that you are truly forgiven if you are in Christ. I mean truly, really forgiven. Because if, if God only knew what you had really done or what you had really thought or what you had really said, He does. Maybe you struggle to believe that you really have forgiveness in Christ. I want you to remember Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Says the man who hunted Christians to the death. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And therefore in Christ you have full forgiveness. In Christ, because of his work on the cross, you are truly and fully forgiven. Believe that promise. You don't always feel it. Perhaps you don't usually feel it. But that is a promise that He makes to everyone who is in Christ. That is a promise He makes that in Christ, anyone, no matter what they've done, no matter the path they've chosen, no matter uh, wh what you have pursued in your life, what you've valued above God, what you've valued above other, other people, no matter what that thing is, in Christ, by faith in Him, because of what he's done in his life of obedience and his death on the cross, you are fully forgiven. No matter how big that obstacle is in your mind. Or maybe you struggle to believe that God really loves you. I mean, all this forensic kind of stuff and language of forgiveness, it sounds kind of like a courtroom and yeah, maybe, but does God really love me? Remember Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. After having started Ephesians chapter 2 by describing uh, the way we were dead in our trespasses and sins and following the course of this world and, and ruled by, by, by the, 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 the prince of this world, the, the spirit of this age, and, and we, were living, we were living like sons of disobedience, the ones who deserve the wrath of God, those people, he says this in 2, 4 and 5, that God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us made us alive together with Christ. It's not just a courtroom setting. It's not just a, a ledger. And my, my, and my ledger is wrong and I need, I, I've got this sin that's got to be dealt with. It's not a cold, uh, distant... He did it because He loves us. That is a promise. Is there some sin of yours that you believe is just too hard for God to overcome? 
There's a passage that you ought to reflect on. If, if this is you, write down this verse or these verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9, 10, and 11. Verses 9 and 10 talk about some of the worst sins, talk about some uh, painful, hard stuff. And maybe in reading through that list, you will find your own sin, the thing that you think is too much for God to overcome in your life, not just forgive, but to overcome. But Paul, in talking about that list of sins, he says these in very, very encouraging words in verse 11. He says, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There is no sin too big for God to overcome in your life. Not only forgive, but overcome. No sin is too hard for God to overcome in Christ Jesus. So we come to our point in the service where we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And men who are serving, if you would come up and join us, please. This time of celebrating the Lord's Supper is a time when we look at these elements which point us to the body and the blood of Christ, the very sacrifice we've just read about. That is the full mercy of God displayed in Christ that He would bear the wrath for my sins as well as it's the full wrath of God on behalf of those very sins poured out, not on you, Christian, on Jesus. Because nothing is impossible with God. Even the forgiveness of your sins. And so this time that we have in our service and this, uh, this meal that we are about to partake of, this is for Christians. This is for those who have realized their own need. They've realized that, that what is represented here, the body and blood of Christ, is the only possible way for me to have peace with God because of my sin. This, is, this represents Jesus himself in whom I have placed my faith as my way of salvation, that I may be saved. And so if you're, if you're not a Christian, let this pass. Think about what we've said and ask questions of any of these men or, or me afterwards. Christian, as the elements are being passed, this is an opportunity for us to, to pray and, and ask the Lord to search our hearts. And, and when we do that, we will find sin. And we confess our sin. And we don't go away there thinking, oh, that's the end. I'm just a sinner. I'm just a, well, you are a sinner and I'm a sinner. That's not the end of the story. Because of His great love with which He loved you, He sent His Son to pay the penalty for those sins. So you confess those sins to God, and in Christ you find full forgiveness of those sins. They are washed away. They are done away. You don't bear them anymore. And when you walk out of here today, you walk out of here without those sins. You have forgiveness that you walk out with instead. So first, we come to the bread. Men, if you would take up the bread, please. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Father, we are so grateful for the body of your son given for us that he would give up his own life to pay the penalty for our sins. That makes no sense except that it is rooted in your great mercy and grace and love for us. Thank you for Jesus who gave his life that we might have life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Men, if you would take up the cup, please. Paul continues, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Father, we are so grateful for the blood of Christ given for us. This new covenant established by him wherein he fulfills the law's demands. That he pays the penalty in himself for our sins. That we, by faith in him, have life. Are given a new heart. We get to be made your very own children brought right in and acceptable because of what he has done. And we celebrate that and we thank you for the blood of Christ for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.
Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And if you truly believe in Jesus Christ, if you've come here today in a spirit of repentance, then I, I get to say to you that your sins are forgiven and you don't have to walk out of here with them on you. Praise God for that. I'm going to pray for us in a moment. Uh, today is our day where we give uh, uh, towards the Benevolence Fund, uh, where we support those who are in need. Um, and then we're going to close with a hymn today. But let me close in prayer first. Father, we are grateful for the fact that nothing is too hard for you, even dealing with my own sin, dealing with our own guilt before you. Our enmity towards you has been dealt with in Christ, and that is ours by faith, and we rejoice in Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. such a great message. Thank you today, uh, Brennan. Thanks so much. There is a Redeemer. It's Jesus. Let's stand and sing about it. Give Him the praise. Amen.
Go out with joy and serve the Lord. Amen. You're dismissed.